Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. Hey, Vashon! Hello! How's it going, everyone? Welcome! Thank you for coming! This is our first ever live Labyrinths episode. It's so great to be here, and you are all so beautiful. I guess our one question for you is, are you feeling lost? If so, you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is is Labyrinth. Labyrinth. We are live here at the Vashon Center for the Arts. Yeah. A few months ago, Amanda and I hosted our first ever live recording of Labyrinths at the Vashon Center for the Arts. We moved to this rural island near Seattle just before the pandemic, and we were excited to discover some local stories about being lost. And we found some great ones. And the first has particular resonance for us because it's about local news. I come from a family of small-town journalists. My grandfather started some local newspapers back in the 50s. And the first job I had after prison was writing anonymously for the local paper in West Seattle. But local news has been in trouble for a while. And I saw it firsthand as the family business my grandfather started dwindled and downsized with the rise of the internet as jobs evaporated left and right. It's a problem that has bigger consequences than you might think. The newspaper industry today is in big trouble. Papers have been closing and downsizing for years, and that affects all of us. That's John Oliver from Last Week Tonight. And the truth is, a big part of the blame for this industry's dire straits is on us and our unwillingness to pay for the work journalists produce. This is a big deal because local news trickles up and forms the source material for a lot of national outlets. The media is a food chain which would fall apart without local newspapers. A study of over 200 papers found that between 2003 and 2014, their number of full-time statehouse reporters declined by 35%. A lack of local reporters covering local government has dire consequences. Here's Chuck Plunkett, former editor of the Denver Post. I'm here to warn you that when local news dies, so does our democracy. We can't just rely on the big national papers like the Journal and the Times and the Post. Those are tremendous papers, and we need them now, my God, more than ever before. But there is no world in which they could cover every election in every county in the country. No. The newsroom best equipped to cover your local election ought to be your local newsroom, if you're lucky and still have one. And many of us don't. Newspapers were already in trouble, and the pandemic made it worse. According to the New York Times, over 360 newspapers have closed since early 2020. And that brings us back to our own community of Vashon Island. When the pandemic hit, our local newspaper, The Beachcomber, was in crisis. So please welcome our first guest, Liz Shepard. Come on on stage, Liz. For those who don't know you here, can you please give us a brief introduction of yourself? I've lived here on Vashon for 25 years, almost. Before I came here, I had a very long career in the arts. 
I lived in Chicago, and I worked as the director of an international children's film festival. I came out here, and I became the mother of twins. And then I went back to work, and I became the director of another children's film festival in uh, Seattle. But along the way, I decided it would also be fun to have a writing job. I heard about this job opening on Vashon, which was the um, arts editor of The Beachcomber. I was like, I want that job. And how long had The Beachcomber been running here on Vashon when you joined? The first issue came out in 1957, and it's been a wonderful newspaper for many years, really important to our community. It was um, really something I grabbed when I first moved here, like, what is this? This is so great. And in the 1990s, it became the first newspaper owned by Sound Publishing, which is a company that puts out local newspapers. So how was The Beachcomber doing going into 2020? You know, we're so lucky on Vashon. We have this strong advertising community and this strong readership and people who care about local news. But we had been through some change because our two longtime editors had left. Paul Rowley was the reporter of The Beachcomber, and we were working together as best we could. But I had left to do my children's film festival in February of 2020. That's when we opened. (laughs) (laughs) And as you remember those days, it just got worse and worse every day, something more. Oh, yeah. And then it was like, oh. I work for a newspaper. How are we going to handle this? Mm -hmm. And I'm still the 15-hour-a-week arts editor, but it's like we're all just on board working, working, working. Mm -hmm. And then we got a phone call from headquarters, (laughs) and everybody in the office got furloughed, except for Paul. Wow. So Mm -hmm. down to one employee. One employee left to make an entire newspaper happen. Right. So... Can I just ask, Mm -hmm. a lot of people have been seeing local papers just disappear. Right. Kind of like the dinosaurs. If it's this old kind of media, why not just let it go? Well, we can't let it go. Because communities really do suffer when they lose local newspapers. And more than 2,500 local newspapers have closed since 2005. There have been really uh, big studies about what is lost when a community loses its local newspaper. Uh, Communities see increased corruption. They see uh, the salaries of their highly paid public servants (laughs) get even higher. Interesting. really have an important role. And I think on Vashon, especially during the pandemic, we had a role to keep our community together. That's how I felt about it. You know, I felt like we weren't seeing each other. We couldn't gather like this. And so the newspaper all of a sudden was just a place where we could read about each other. I'd been furloughed, but I was on the phone with Paul, you know, like, I'll help you. I swear I'll help you. You're not alone. And of course, he was alone. He was in that newsroom alone. But I did help him. I did help him. I really did. I still had my email. They forgot to shut that off. And so, you know, people were still sending me stories and I could still get into the system. And that went on for months. And somehow we kept selling ads and the papers stayed in press. We started doing all kinds of things that were uh, community oriented, like Karen Biondo started writing profiles of farmers and Christine Back started sending in artist profiles. So could we just remember who we are? Because that was such a lost time. Everybody was lost. But this newspaper was a way to keep it together. And we also needed public health information at that time. 
because you can't get that on the internet, as it turns out, we found out, you know. We can't just rely on Facebook. We can't really get all the things we need to know about COVID. <laughs> so what we did was we partnered with uh, Vashon Be Prepared, because they were sending out daily emails. We worked with them to do a weekly re uh, report, which we still have in the paper every week. I mean, we still need it, because COVID keeps changing. And so I think those are the th kinds of things we need that's something beautiful about our community is that people did step up. I don't know if they would have done that in every community, but in our community, I think a lot of people latched mm. onto this idea of, oh yeah, we've got to have a newspaper, you know? And Did and it feel like a choice to you, that no. moment? It was automatic. It still doesn't feel like a choice. It's, mm. <laughs> it's like every day, it's like, oh God, do I have to still do this? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it didn't feel like a choice. It really didn't. Did you know what would be required of you stepping into that role? No. To keep it alive? No. No, not really. I mean, I thought COVID was going to be over <laughs> <laughs> yeah. at some point, and <laughs> we could go back to the way things mm -hmm. were, but the world fundamentally has shifted. And then I came back in May, and I eventually became the editor, unlike Many other papers at that time went to digital only, but we kept our newspaper. We even got better. We got a broadsheet. And we have another wonderful reporter who I think is here tonight, Jenna Dennison, who's killing it and so happy to have her on our staff. But, you know, we still are smaller. We still need that community to, we need to reflect it out and we need, it needs to come back to us in terms of content from our community. Every week we try to remember our past and kind of look forward to what's coming next and reflect who we are as a community. And it really is, it really is a rough draft of history on Vashon. And it has been for a long time. And we wanted to love this community back through our work. So that's what I would, I would ask is for people to look at it and feel it and realize it's, whoa, this feels pretty light, but wow, we have it. And it belongs and to all of us here. Yeah. And it does yeah. belong to all of us here. And it'll belong to all of us. Hopefully, for a very long time, we'll still have the Vashon Maury Island Beachcomber laying down a rough draft of history every week. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks it's been for such a having pleasure me. having you on. Thanks, everyone. Can we all please give a big hand for Liz? Thank you. Thank you, everybody. I have newspapers outside. If anybody wants, we very nearly lost our local paper here on Vashon. I'm so grateful for Liz and everyone else who kept the beachcomber alive. And if you haven't thought about your own local paper in a while, we encourage you to do so. Local news not only binds communities together and holds local government accountable, it makes room for exquisite moments like this. What did you think about the ride? It was great. Why? Because apparently you're spinning around and apparently every time you get dizzy, and apparently, I've never been on live television before, but apparently sometimes I don't watch the sh I don't watch the news because I'm a kid, and apparently every time, apparently Grandpa just gives me a remote after he watched the Powerball. We could tell you all the great reasons you should support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content, 
But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, my name is Allie, and I joined Labyrinth's Patreon because there's nowhere else that you can explore the ebbs and the flows of humanity with the kind of truth and grace that you can get with Labyrinth's. There really isn't anywhere else you can get that. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. The story of the beachcomber was about something on the verge of being lost. For our next story, we wanted to dive into the heart of the labyrinth, that moment when something precious has been lost, and you'll stop at nothing to find it again. And there's nothing quite so precious as an animal companion. According to the Humane Society, around 10 million pets are lost in the U.S. each year. Less than 15% of unchipped pets are reunited with their owners, and nearly a million are euthanized each year. That sad fate is not unlikely for a lost pet, so emotions run high when a pet goes missing. Who do you turn to in that moment of crisis? Please welcome Amy Carey. Coming well, in here. thanks for having me. It's nice, and particularly after two years of being locked in our own homes, it's nice to actually be out with people. Hey, thanks for braving the world. <laughs> <laughs> so, in brief, could you introduce yourself to this here crowd of folks? Absolutely. I actually grew up in the Midwest, in the middle of cornfields, so about as far from sort of a Northwest experience. But I came here for the first time um, when I was, I think, 18, and it was home and like Mecca, and wore many different hats, whether that was playing in rock bands, working in the big rock clubs in the heyday of the grunge mm. world, and recording studios here, real estate, all sorts of different things. But animals have always been the thread. I've always been doing animal work in some way, shape, or form, whether in Chicago I'd be trapping feral cats and all sorts of things. So that's kind of always been in my core. And what led me more into sort of lost and found recovery was because I lost my dog, Isabel, who was 18. And in this strange fluke moment, she got out of the fence. She had been starting to show some senility. And I turned around to put a puppy that I was fostering back in the fence, and she was gone into thin air. Oh. And we never found her. And to this day, even though this was now a decade ago, right, it, it, it sits with you, right? kind of haunts you always. And so from what I learned from that, I started then to think, well, maybe there's a way to start helping other animals and people that might be going through that. So when an animal goes missing, I always have a lot of questions. When somebody says, mm. hey, I have this, you know, uh, animal. I come from a family of journalists too, so I'm mm. sort of like suddenly interviewing them. But I've also found that because sometimes the smallest little thing is how I find the animal. There can be certain patterns. Like the first thing I'll say with a cat is you're going to go look in your car, your shed. Same thing with dogs if they kind of go into thin air. And a lot of times, I mean, I've had dogs that were found, I'm not kidding, folded up in the hide-a-bed. Right. Oh, no. Wow. Uh, these things oh, happen no. a lot. I have to say to people, go back in your house, and they'll say, I looked already. I'm like, here's what you're going to do. Do you have a hide-a-bed? Yeah. No, I know. And there's a bunch of those, right? I mean, the stories, right? It's, it's crazy. Um, they were rolled up. They closed the hide-a-bed up. They were two. 
too. So those are a lot of some of those oddities. Very often animals, they are often stuck over slopes a lot Mm. with dogs. That's my Mm. first go-to. I worry about wells. I worry about holes, ditches, you know, all sorts of different things there. And cats get locked in things quite a bit, Mm. up trees, when they're the actually lucky ones because they've escaped the coyotes. I had a cat two weeks ago that I found that was stuck by its tail hanging upside down from a tree. Oh, my. But dumb luck that I happened to be like, what's that sound? It, what it, an it odd was sound. So there's all <laughs> sorts of, it, it's rarely this sort of cut and dried like, yeah. but there's still patterns to it. There's one particular story here on Vashon that kind of resonated in a big way across the nation. Can you tell us about Phoebe and Tilly? <laughs> Everyone's heard this yeah. story. <laughs> so Tilly and Phoebe, they were regular runners. What is a, what is a regular runner? What oh, does that sorry. Mean? It was not uncommon for them to run off from their house. Ah. Phoebe would bust out and Tilly would be like, I got to go with her. I don't know. <laughs> These dogs do? had met in a daycare. <laughs> their personalities were very, very different. So I had a call uh, from the owner and some friends that they were sort of out again. And normally they had sort of a regular thing where you'd find out where they were and somebody would get them. But this one was like, mm, it was getting days. Their usual things weren't happening. And I got a call from somebody, a community member from miles away. And I'd been putting things out on social media and things like that. And the caller said, there's this red dog that for the past few days has just kept showing up in my field but then running back down into this ravine. And he's like, I don't think it means anything. And my brain went, I'll be right over. Yeah. Right? Mm. And <laughs> that so, is a lassie moment. Yeah. I've ever seen. So I go over <laughs> to the property. And so I start to go down into this ravine. One of the other really core things with dogs that are stuck is they don't make a noise. The loudest dog in the world will be absolutely silent. And that's almost universal because if you think about it, they're in a precarious situation. Mm. They're not going to be like, hey, come get me, predator. And so you don't get clues like that. So I don't usually even call for dogs because that can also make them retreat into themselves a little bit more. But for some reason, I just said, Tilly, slightest little woof. And I went, you are kidding me, right? Just a little thing. And I couldn't see where, what, you know, I just was like, okay, I'm going this way. In through blackberry brambles, and there was this sort of little deer trail thing. And then I come out, and I see Tilly, and I see this cement wall, and I know what it is, and my heart just went, oh, oh. And Tilly is pressed so tightly to it, and you couldn't see into it yet, right? Because I'm coming up sort of looking around, looking around, and as I got right up, the picture, I don't think it's, the, that went around the world Slide. is... Um, (laughs) is you could see Phoebe and, and that was an old cistern. And the reason that she did not drown is that somebody had piled up that rubble into it, but the water's right Uh. there. And she'd probably been there for five days, maybe. Uh. I think something like that. I'll always say, um, if, if somebody has a dog, I'll always ask to, if they have a friend dog. It's not the first time I've had a dog help me find a dog, but Tilly was like, I'm in charge. I got it going here. She was just a remarkable dog, uh, Tilly. But it was something to see because when she was so pressed to the backside, she knew right there that I had just seen Phoebe because I said her name. That's when Tilly finally stood up and would look at me like, got it. She was just pressed to it. And uh, like she was like even trying to cuddle Phoebe, but she couldn't. She like, just, ugh. you know, she didn't eat or yeah. drink or whatever for five days. She did not, except to run right up to the ravine, 
She did not leave Phoebe's side. I know, right? Come on. Well, <laughs> like, it was something. God. I mean, I always thought the Timmy's trapped in the well kind of lassie moment was a TV thing that didn't ever really happen. But this kind of puts the lie to that, right? It was crazy. It went like viral, viral, like news stations. Like I needed like, you know. You needed a whole PR team. No, for- it was crazy. <laughs> it went so far, you know, those um, Hong Kong, like they make the animated news stories. Uh-huh. They did oh, wow. that. It oh, was, wow. It was we like, oh, that. my God. A lot of, like, magazines and people writing books about it. It was a story. It still seems pretty surreal to me. Amy's not kidding. The story of Phoebe and Tilly traveled the world, and it even led our own governor to honor Tilly. And now, therefore, I.J. Inslee, governor of the state of Washington, named Tilly as the Washingtonian of the day, October 15th, 2015. And I urge everyone in Washington to celebrate the bravery and loyalty of this canine hero. Congratulations, <laughs> Tilly. So the other side of animal rescue is also wildlife. There's a lot of animals that live on the island yeah. that are residents here long before us even. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with wildlife? Sure. On the island with wildlife, it's more of sort of an assessment triage, get them to where they're going to the, to the wildlife rehab places. But you're dealing with things in a different way. This time of year, anybody who works in animal stuff, it's spring is love-hate because it's every baby animal. There's a lot of heartbreak and a lot of joy in all of it too. And last week was one that was another one of those oof moments where I had had a call from somebody on the island who had found a, a mother Canada goose. The mother and father take care of both the babies and they had hatched, like I think the day, day before he knew and he found the mother's body and then a bunch of feathers. Cause I was like, well, where's dad? And so dad's gone too. all the feathers. You knew something bad had happened. He was such a nice guy. He's like, I know it might be nature. It was coyotes that got them, but I can't just, I can't, you know, let them just get plucked off. And so he had, scooped up the four uh, babies um, and put them in his chicken coop. I was off island actually delivering another animal somewhere. And I called him. He'd sent me a picture. And I said, I thought you said there were four. And he said there were, but two got out of my chicken run. I don't know how that happened. And I said, well, I'll be there. But now my brain is like, oh, my God, I'm going to be out until midnight looking for two baby geese somewhere, you know. And so I pull up. And he kind of showed me where it was. And he said, and there's the, the mom, her body he had left by kind of this pond. And I went, oh. And went over. And my brain went, I know where they are. And I went and found then the two babies who had traveled back to their mother's body. And even in her... yeah. I mean, this is that motherhood thing, right? Like the the power of that. She's not here anymore. Her body is giving them refuge. And that's what they ran to. Yeah. And so same thing. I went snap. It was both heartbreaking and really one of those powerful moments of, of, wow, so much bigger than us, you know? Mm. And um, so then we pulled the two babies from underneath there and then rejoined them with their other two and they spent the night in my bathroom until they got to the wildlife rehab. But I think with, with wildlife stuff, you know, and this is this community stuff too, right? This was a person, you know, who was doing his role in this and we all work together on it. But I, I sometimes think of it that 
particularly when it's the orphaned babies, their parents, and in this case, literally died to save them. Yeah. And so as a community, if we can sort of, it's like a relay baton, right? We've got, great, we'll, we'll, we'll at least honor you by trying to finish your work. Yeah. And get yeah, these and you guys know to save that they died to save their babies. In this case, yeah. Why do you know that? Well, because adult geese can fly off, right? Yeah. So yeah. they would not leave their baby. I mean, that's the nature of what geese will do too. Whether it was dogs or coyotes, they were going to defend their babies, particularly at this incredibly young age. And they gave up their lives. And amazingly, all four of the babies. It wasn't like there were 10 babies and these were the remaining. Yeah. There were only four. And so they did a really great job. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love that you're carrying forward that <laughs> the spirit of what the mother and father geese were doing there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining yeah, us thank and being you. on Labyrinth. Yes. Yeah. So thank you. Liz Shepard took us through that moment when you're suddenly lost. Amy Carey, in her work with Animal Rescue, took us through what it takes to find something that has been lost. But what do you do in the aftermath? When it seems like all is lost, and yet you somehow walk away from the wreckage, it takes time to make meaning out of disaster. Just about a year before this live event, our final guests nearly died. Craig Bellis was the passenger and co-pilot alongside his pal Truman O'Brien for the flight from Central Oregon to Vashon Island Monday afternoon. Craig says shortly after crossing over the Columbia River into Washington, at an altitude of 8,000 feet, the engine on the four-seat aircraft started to cough. Craig and Truman obviously survived, but we wanted to know, what does it all mean? Please give a big hand to Craig Bellis and Truman O'Brien. <laughs> it's, the, it's the story that never ends, is what it yes. is. <laughs> Aren't they all? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so, uh, tell us about yourselves. Go ahead, Truman. I'll talk about my aviation uh, background first. Uh, the 23rd of last month marked 60 years since my first solo in an airplane. Wow. 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 Yeah, long time. And uh, over that time, I've accumulated just under 20,000 hours and uh, flown... I think I figured it out the other day, something like 55 different models uh, aircraft. Wow. Everything Jeez. from a, a Piper Cub up through a four-engine propeller uh, uh, aircraft to uh, uh, 727s and 737s. That's more than Tom Cruise, I think. You should yeah, be. I think so. I think so. Right, right close there. Um, the last 12 years was a uh, captain for Alaska uh, flying a 737s. Dang, I flew okay. all over all over Alaska throughout the contiguous 48 states and uh, Canada and Mexico as well. So, done a lot of flying. Of course, uh, I've lived on the island for 34 years. I can't believe mm. it's been that long. Okay, right. so you are officially a I, bachelor. I, I think I'm a bachelor. Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, and of course, I got involved in the community. I'm currently the airport commissioner for our little municipal airports, and I'm currently on the board of a. Uh, the voice of Ashon. And okay. Hey, right. voice, of Ashon. voice of Ashon. I'll give you the abbreviated version of that, <laughs> yeah. that I always do. Uh, 73 years ago, I was 8 pounds, 12 ounces. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's true, but that's not where I'm going to start. I'm an attorney, and uh, like uh, 
Truman, I've been involved in a lot of uh, activities on the island. Uh, I was on the land trust board. I was the president of the community council for many years. Uh, and I am now on the board of uh, the Voice of Ashon. And have hey. Well, how did you wind up in an airplane I like that? I ended up in an airplane very different than Truman did. I didn't get my license until just over two years ago, at the age of 70. Truman and I had been friends and we were at a party and I approached Truman and I said, Truman, you ever think about getting back into aviation? He said, I was just talking to my nephew about that. So to make that long story short, everything fell together. We have a friend had a plane on the, uh, has a plane on our airport. He said, there's a fellow who's got a plane for sale. There's another individual who's here who's got a hangar. Can you give us the little one minute rundown on what this plane is and what it's capable of? It's a Piper Cherokee 140 that's been upgraded to a larger engine, uh, a 180 horsepower engine and a constant speed uh, propeller uh, so that the pitch on it could change. It, it made it a much better plane for cruising, for taking off up to get out of the trees there at the airport. Oh, and by the way, when we first bought this <laughs> plane, we formed a, an LLC. And uh, finally, I thought, you know, every time I've flown in here with Truman or somebody else, the glide path is the top of the trees. Right it's at the, the top. Bashan Municipal airport, you know, pine tree glide path. You just put the <laughs> wheels almost in the trees. And I thought we should call the LLC Treetop Flyers. Mm. Little did we know how prophetic Little that was going to be. We, all, we thought later we should wow. have said, what, a Wait, couple of guys sitting around in a hangar drinking yeah, beers, yeah, LLC? Three old guys sitting around the hangar <laughs> yeah. on a night, LLC, you know. Life may have proceeded much differently. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. or, you know, we found the pot of gold, uh, yeah. the LLC. So that's, uh, that's what we did, and, and uh, I got my license, uh, and uh, the rest is uh, history. Well, why don't you take us to that baseful day? I'll start you out. We flew right down to Bend, two, two planes, a brand-new plane we had, an old brand-new plane. We were going to get painted, and we were going to fly this plane back. So we had two planes flying down. And this one back. And by the way, I always tell Truman, I remind Truman of this. I flew this plane down. Truman flew it back. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be important later. (laughs) Halfway back. Halfway back. (laughs) Uh, But uh, we were coming back and Truman was flying because the weather had deteriorated and we knew we were going to be in the clouds. And Truman, of course, is instrument rated. I'm not instrument rated. Uh, So he was uh, sitting in the left seat as the pilot in command. We crossed over the Columbia River uh, at about 8,000 feet, went for a while, got into the clouds, and uh, all of a sudden we felt a strange vibration. Yeah. And we didn't know whether or not something had hit the plane or if something was wrong with the engine. It's like a vibration, odd vibration. Truman, of course, was in contact with uh, air traffic control, this being a, a... uh, IFC flight. Well, so we're at 8,000, all of a sudden the engine starts running rough, and I'm talking to ATC, and I said, you know, we're going to try and troubleshoot, figure out what's wrong with the airplane. We descended down to 6,000, and uh, on the descent down, it became very obvious that uh, the problem was the engine, and, and we were not going to be able to maintain altitude. And I, So, I, I just want to pause there. Yeah. We are not going to be able to maintain altitude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. That seems like an important thing to do. <laughs> yeah, can, can be, can be, yeah. yeah. So by the time we got to 6,000, uh, where we ended up was about 2,000. So we had about 4,000 feet of altitude to lose. 
<clears throat> which we did, obviously. <laughs> and uh, at that glide ratio, you could glide that airplane without an engine for seven and a half miles. And, and just point of reference, a 737 has a 17 to one glide ratio. So that means if you're at 35,000 feet in an airliner and both engines quit, you could glide for like 112 miles, believe wow. it or not. I always tell people, you know, gee, if I were coming down from uh, from Anchorage and I happened to hit Victoria and both engines quit, I could land at SeaTac, no problem. It's not a wily e. Coyote scenario. I mean, the key <laughs> you know, it just is just plummet straight down. <laughs> no, no, yeah. No. The key not. there, the key there is you don't want the nose too far down. No, and you don't want the nose too far, far up because then you will stop flying and it will come down faster. So I slowed the airplane to the to the best glide speed. Anyway, uh, we break out of the clouds and uh, we're very close to the ground. And there are a lot of trees. And a very, very close to the ridge, right? Very in front close of us. to the ridge. We had a yeah. terrain thing flashing on our instrument yeah. panel. And so, the, like Mission the, Impossible, like planes hitting sides of mountains kind of situation. Kind of a situation. Our, our uh, controller was excellent, by the way. She gave us vectors to keep us away from the higher terrain. And uh, once we broke out into this valley, the controller said, Do you see any roads? I said, uh, no, ma'am, all we see are trees, <laughs> lots of trees. And you know what I was feeling? It was disappointment. I was like, damn, there's nowhere to go. It was very depressing to me. And maybe that was the other reason I wasn't, you know, so hyped up because it was like, doggone it. Here I'm going to end up wrecking our great little airplane. We may not walk out of it, but I didn't really think about that so much. It's the fact that I was just disappointed that there was no place to put it. I did see a little clearing off to one side. I thought, well, if we get close to that, we'll maybe we'll get a chance of being found. So we, I made that turn, and uh, my last transmission to her was, uh, is we're going to put it in the trees. And uh, her last transmission to us was, uh, Roger, I'll notify search and rescue. Mm. That was the last communication that we had with them. So can I just pause for sure, a moment with sure, that? Sure. So, okay, so you're saying I'm putting it in the trees. Yeah. What does that mean for you, and what does that mean for the person on the other line? Uh, it's terrifying for her uh, because, you know, if you put it in the trees, that's generally not a good thing. Yeah. To say the least. Um, like, are we, what is the survival of something like that? So if you do it right... You have a chance to do it. Um, the trick is you want to fly the airplane as slowly as you can, but, but keep it flying. And you want to put it into the treetops and let those smaller branches and smaller treetops decelerate the airplane. So we decelerated quite slowly. In mm -hmm. fact, we decelerated slowly enough that our emergency locator transmitter, which is built into the airplane, did not, did not uh, activate. Huh. You make it sound like this, like, sweet, cushy experience. What did the, oh, yeah. what, what did the uh, airplane what did that look, look like? like at the end uh, of it? Let's well, let's see. see. Do we have, a, I think we have let's a picture see the next oh, oh, there we go. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, uh, it, it doesn't look like out. anybody walked away from that alive. No, it didn't <laughs> turn out too well. Well, Truman actually didn't walk uh, out yeah. of there. <laughs> <laughs> He fell out on his face, is what he's trying oh, to okay, say. Okay. <laughs> no, I, have to, I do have to tell you one funny thing, though. I was astounded that, that really neither of us had that adrenaline rush. Oh. Huh. And I think, I think the reason is just because we were busy. You know, we're, mm. we're okay, what are we going to do now? And so we didn't have a chance to go, ah! You know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so consequently, we're hanging upside down, uh, hanging in our straps, and uh, we let ourselves crash down into the airplane. And it was kind of like, well, here we are. You know, uh, <laughs> you're not out of the woods, one might exactly, say. <laughs> no, not exactly. It's true. Uh, after I picked myself up off the ground, I stood up and, and I looked at Craig and I said, Craig, 
how in the hell is your hair so absolutely perfect? <laughs> I swear I did. And he looked at me. I mean. He, he kind of went, oh, well, yours looks okay, too. <laughs> I couldn't believe well, it. Well, you know, I did get out immediately in this Facebook era and immediately start taking pictures. He did. Thank you, by the way. That's great. But I thought that would probably come in handy later on. Yeah, which it did. Which it did. Yeah. did. We did. We got out and we. You didn't even think. As they no. say in Maverick, we just did. Yeah. There was uh, fuel pouring out of one of the uh, tanks that had ruptured um, outside the door that was open that we walked out of. So we really, we really had two major things we were looking at. We were looking at uh, communication. How do we let people know where we're at? Which is the worst. Worst yeah. for us. And also our families. We knew that they knew when we were due back on Vashon and we weren't going to be there. Mm. And we couldn't communicate with them. And the other thing is we didn't know if we were going to be there an hour or a couple of days. So we thought about improving our, our situation in terms of comfort. And, mm-hmm. and uh, we worked on both of those things right away. We got the seats off. We cut the seat cushions off so that we could have some blankets to keep us warm because it was starting to get a little chilly. It was about 42 degrees. Did you do that thing that they always say you should do in the woods? Pardon me? Which is get a little closer than you... Oh, might yeah. otherwise. Oh, yeah. Well, that actually was something that came up. Craig, Craig. You were like, who's Big Spoon? Who's Little Spoon? And, uh, we, we, got the, we got the seats out of the airplane. And Craig puts the seats over there. And I walked over and looked at it and said, uh, Craig, put those babies here. Close to you. <laughs> I, said, I, I like you, pal. But, you know, we, we're going to have to stay warm here tonight. See, I had a coat. He didn't. That's right. Ah. Which the coat is actually another interesting part of the story. Yeah. But. yeah. Well, you uh, go ahead. Go ahead and tell it, Greg. We started a fire, kind of. It was everything was soaking wet, and there was oh. snow on the ground. And but we got a smoky fire going, which helped out. Search and rescue a few miles away saw us. Saw the fire. We had the ELT that we were able to get operating. We had to dig it out of the tail of the of the plane. Had to crawl up there and get it uh, get it started. So we we got that all done, and and finally. Uh, uh, after several hours, we heard the sound of a helicopter. We saw it all way off above the trees in the distance. We saw a big naval helicopter. And we thought, oh, great. There they are, finally. You know, it's fabulous. They fly away. And we, and we, fly, we flash our flights. Yeah, we've got flashlights. And we can see them. You know. It's not dark yet, though. No, you just know. not it's quite. It's still a fair amount of light. Uh, so they leave. And we think, what? What? And they and and they did. They came back. What a half hour? Oh, yeah, half hour, forty. Yeah, half hour, forty five minutes. Later. They made you sweat a little. Yeah, yeah. And they come back, and this time they get closer, and it's darker, and our red flashing flashlights get their attention, and we think, oh, great, they're coming to to rescue us. And they fly away. <laughs> and I'm, I go, what? What? What the heck? And they're gone, gone for another fifteen, twenty minutes, and then they come back again. And this time we go, I think they come to this time to rest. This time they got the spotlights on us. Yeah, and, and Truman had put the plane down near a, quote, clearing, a clearing with big giant stumps. Yeah, stumps. You couldn't land. No. Mm. But you could get there and people could. Right. Uh, and so we worked our way over there. Helicopter wash was so severe, you couldn't walk underneath this helicopter very well. You had to crawl on your hands and knees to get over to where the EMTs, two EMTs dropped down. Um, so the, the helicopter's hovering up there about 100, 150 feet above the treetops. And uh, the EMTs get a hold of us and they go, are you guys injured? And we go, no. And they go, nothing? Nothing. And we go, <laughs> no. No. <laughs> and, and they go, 
Really? <laughs> you know, and, and well, I had, so, I had blood all over my hand and all over my face. And you got blood on my, my high vis yellow your nice jacket. jacket. Oh, you know, which, uh, I hope you haven't washed Wait, that. So, how, no, I haven't. No, okay. So, what does the jacket have to do with this story? But, uh, we found out later when we talked to the uh, the pilots. They said, "Yeah, we uh, we we saw you down there, and we saw that high vis emergency search and rescue jacket you had on, and we just assumed that you'd been rescued." Well, they thought we're the crew, you know, the yeah. rescue crew. Yeah, that was yeah. Oh. yeah. Those are those are guys on our team yeah. looking for them. Those are yeah. our guys. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they left. So they left. <laughs> they left. <laughs> yeah. They obviously checked in with somebody, and the people said, "No, we haven't found them." We. Uh, <laughs> so they came back and they got us. Well, you're being rescued here. What did your family know? Well, they didn't actually. They didn't get called until about six o'clock, and we went down about just about four. And uh, my wife was out dealing with horses, and uh, when she came in, the phone was ringing, and it was at six, I think six or six thirty, somewhere in there. And they're saying the 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 guys are down. We know they're down in the woods, and uh, and of course she immediately called Annette, uh, Craig's wife, and my daughter, and you know the whole network started going. They had a a, a very bad time for about uh, three hours there until three and a half hours until we were found. My wife uh, had friends over. Um, they came over immediately, pilots that, that knew where to go on the internet to, to get the track and everything until we went off radar. Uh, and she, she talked to uh, our daughter and our granddaughter, and our granddaughter said, no, Grandpa's okay. I just know he's okay. Mm. So uh, Lynette said she just wouldn't allow herself to go there yet. She mm. just wouldn't allow herself to go mm. to, the, to the worst case scenario. Mm. Uh, and the, the good news came in before she went yeah. to that point. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just thinking about how um, when my family got the call. Yeah, exactly. And how, like, my mom was on the way to Italy to, to be there to support me. And as soon as she landed... She tried to call me and tried to call me and tried to call me, and I couldn't answer. No. And helpless. Yeah. Yeah. That's a so. horrible feeling. Horrible feeling for them. I, when I got, finally got a hold of my wife on the phone for the first time, the first thing she said to me was, We're sitting around here deciding who's going to play you guys in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I okay. opted for Steve Buscemi. She, she Steve already Buscemi. knew that we, okay. she knew we were safe at that point. Okay, so. <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's good. Okay, so you get out of the woods, you make it out, and you're you're assaulted by people who want to hear you tell this story. You've got a crazy story yeah. to tell. You yeah. tell the story. You tell the story. Tell you tell the, the story. story. Tell the story. What is it like telling this story over and over again? This is interesting. I think there have been two news or two uh, magazine articles. There's been uh, uh, one podcast, no, two. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's all right. <laughs> There's been um, four YouTube episodes. Uh, we've been asked by the uh, FBI and the DEA to come and speak to their flight departments to put on a presentation for them about what did you do and what did you do to survive. And, and, and of course, then we see everybody at Thriftway. <laughs> <laughs> And like you, I'm sure, Amanda, they, they want to hear the, the nitty gritty, you know, and, and what do you say to them? You know, they say, oh, boy, I heard about your crash. And you went, yeah, well, yeah, gosh, pretty exciting. Um, you know, Here that, I am. <laughs> and, 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 you know, that kind of brings us back to where you two are coming from. Yeah. I mean, the, people want to pigeonhole you. Mm. They want a story that they have imagined and they've seen on television right. and in the movies and they've read about in books and they... They, they, they want all that, you know, airplane drama. 
Um, and there was some, there's some drama. I mean, you know, when I think back on this whole event now, I think of all the things that we got lucky about. I mean, Truman is an extraordinarily skilled pilot. I could not have had a better pilot at the time, but we had a lot of luck. That's for sure. We had a lot of luck. There's, I can just think of all the things that could have gone wrong um, that would have killed us or maimed us or whatever the case may be. Well, yeah. In fact, if you look at, there's one place on the nose of the airplane where there's a big, I mean, it looks like a tree must have been this big that hit. Man, if that thing had hit anywhere other than where it hit, this, it could have been. Wow. And we're talking about that 6G deceleration that yeah. could have happened all at once. You know? Yeah. Mm. But, we, so. but we are lucky. Ours uh, is a is a good luck, good feeling story. And people liked and wanted to hear the fact that, that somebody crashed and survived, especially if they, well, most people who know us were happy that we yeah. survived. Most, most people. people. Yeah. <laughs> a few was, holders out. A few you know, arch nemeses out there shaking yeah. their fists. Yeah, I mean, but, if, yeah. if, if yeah. you're going to be pigeonholed or typecast for the rest of your life, this isn't a bad one. That's not yeah. a bad one to be. That's yeah. not a bad yeah. one. I mean, yeah. obviously, Truman and I have very different aspects of our life. We're fathers and grandfathers and husbands and, and volunteers and everything else. We feel good about giving Absolutely. interviews uh and, and talking to the press and talking to people in the aviation industry. Uh, if we can help somebody survive. I mean, Truman's have, you have, you have nearly 20,000 hours yeah. flying. He never had an accident. Yeah. He's landed off airport on, on occasion, no, but never times. had a bad accident. <laughs> yeah. When you train to get your license, a lot of it is just training for emergencies. Mm. But you don't really get a feel of, for it until you have an emergency. Yeah, then you know, it's like, oh, geez, we've got the checklist and we got to do the, the you know, carb heat. And we've got to change the, the yeah. you know, put the, put the uh, fuel pump on right. and change the fuel tanks and do all those sort of things that we were doing. So we came away from it. I think that both of us felt like we're probably better pilots. Oh, there's no Plus question. we got that out of our system. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have to do that again. <laughs> no, I went back over my, uh, just from memory and making some notes. And I, I just figured out that I have had, over the course of my career, 14 either partial or total engine failures. But many of those were, were single-engine airplanes, and yeah. some of them were catastrophic failures, and some of them were just, you know, you ran out of gas and forgot to switch tanks or whatever. But this is the first time I've actually put one into the into the forest or off-airport. Off um, yeah. Do you feel like the you who walked away from that plane was different in any way? Did you change? Uh, Lynette always asked me, she, my wife, she goes, she goes, are you... Craig 1.0 or, <laughs> or 1.02 yeah. or something. Uh, well, I don't know. They talk about nine lives. I think I've used up a few of them. Uh, mm. I, I'm yeah, hoping I, I have a couple left. So yeah. You and I are working on our second round, I think. Yeah, I know. We've <laughs> been through it once. You think of all the things that could have gone horribly wrong, even with the best piloting, and everything went so right. I, I will tell you, you know, people have said, you know, gee, weren't you really frightened or weren't you, you know, nervous? And like I said, I really wasn't. But I have to tell you that a week after the accident, a friend of mine flew me down to the accident site in his airplane to take a look at it. And uh, I have to admit that when we came into the valley that first time and I saw that valley, I kind of went, okay, mm. yeah. I, I, so I something understand. was inside of you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, even. even Maybe it wasn't up here, but it was in here, definitely. So I felt it. I'm curious to dig more into that 1.0 versus 2.0 you. What was your wife pointing to? What is 
Craig 1.0 and what is Craig 2.0? Well, I was a mean son of a gun. And I, <laughs> and, and I just became the sweetest husband in the world. And, and I think she thought something's awry here. Mm. <laughs> Something is amiss. No, I mean, I, it, uh, it, it, I don't know if, if my conduct uh, changed that much. Uh, I, I, I have spent, obviously, a lot of time thinking about that accident. Uh, something I hadn't done before him. And uh, I'm probably a, a little more pensive than I was. I'm much quieter. Uh, <laughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> uh, no, actually, I, I, you know, it's one of these deals where you get to be Truman in my age and you have experiences like that, like the one we had. Yeah. Uh, it's like life is short. You know, there you, you worry the about things. People worry about can. things. I tell my kids 99% of the stuff you worry about doesn't come to pass. It's the stuff that comes out of totally out of left to right field that you never anticipated. But the things you spend nights worrying about, just do the best you can where you're at and what more can you do? Yeah. 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 That's a great lesson. Well, thank you so much for sharing this story yet again and and especially how you've processed it because I think that's the challenge when you find yourself lost is in the aftermath, figuring out what it means and how to make sense of it. And I We're think that you've, you're still doing it yeah. you, and you'll keep doing it. Yeah. Um, and we'll keep doing it shortly here with Liz and Amy, our other guests, during Q&A. Yeah. So first, give a big hand to Craig and Truman. Thank you for having us. Thank you all for joining us for our first ever live episode of Labyrinth. That evening was followed by a lively and revealing Q&A, but you'll have to join us in person to ask your own questions. We'll be sure to let you know the next time we have a live event planned. Special thanks to Joe Panzetta and the Vashon Center for the Arts for hosting our first one. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. This episode was written and produced by us, recorded live at the Vashon Center for the Arts, with AV assistance from Jesse Bell. Editing and sound design by Josh Thane and theme music by Josh Budo Karp. These aren't the ads you're looking for. These aren't the ads we're looking for. This podcast is listener supported. This podcast is listener supported. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Come on, boys. Let's visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. (laughs) 